I like to think of friction as being somewhat akin to a fire. With a certain level of control, a friction can be very healthy. It can generate heat, it can generate excitement, it can keep a house warm. But with no control or little control, it can easily lead to disastrous effects. Friction is a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I gotta get a knife. <laughs> I gotta hide it. They end up spending a lot of time ruminating. I'm Bob Sutton. I'm an organizational psychologist and a professor in the Stanford School of Engineering. I'm interested in organizational friction. It's that drag, that feeling of walking in muck, the problems that slows organizations down, makes them flail and fail. This, then, is the Friction Podcast. Today, our guest is Rebecca Hines. I've known Rebecca since she was an undergraduate and uh, one of the smartest students in one of my classes. Uh, then I and actually a bunch of other Stanford faculty members hired her as a research assistant. In fact, uh, Huggy Rao and I worked with her. She ended up doing a lot of editing on our last book, Scaling Up Excellence. Honestly, she was better than the professional editors. So um, we're fortunate to have Rebecca here today. Although she's graduated um, from Stanford, she continues to do all sorts of things. Uh, she's a manager at Dropbox. She's still involved in a company called Stratio, a sensor company that uh, she helped found. The main thing we're going to focus on today is something called the Simple Sabotage Field Manual. This is a document that the CIA recently declassified. It was originally um, written, produced by something called the Office of Strategic Services, a forerunner of the CIA. And essentially what it does is it instructs ordinary citizens how to do things like use uh, hair, sand, uh, calling too many meetings, all sorts of sabotage to sort of slow organizations down. And uh, what we're going to do with this old spy manual is to look at some of the methods and think of them as ways to, that uh, um, people in organizations either unwittingly or intentionally introduce friction and also ways that uh, constructive friction can be um, introduced into organizations. So today I'd like to welcome Rebecca Hines to the Friction Podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Bob. I'm excited for today's discussion. All right. Let's start out with the Simple Sabotage Field Manual, which is available online. And this thing is absolutely crazy. And maybe what we should do is go through some of their crazy advice. But why, why don't we um, talk about some of the things they recommend and see if we can come up with some organizational analogies and lessons? Sure. So what's one of the first ones that struck you? Well, first, I think it's important to recognize that the Simple Sabotage Field Manual starts out by explicitly saying that these simple sabotage activities are executed by ordinary citizens. Yep. They don't require any specially prepared tools or equipment. And I think, you know, whenever we consider sabotage in the workplace, we need to remember that that sabotage is enacted and spurred by ordinary employees. And, yep. you know, it doesn't require any special equipment. It can manifest itself in meetings and emails, etc. Ordinary activities conducted by ordinary citizens. So, so, the, so these are uh, intentional or unintentionally um, bad things we can do to anybody can do to their colleagues anywhere. 
Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no special equipment required. Uh, okay, so so what's one of your favorite ones? There's all these crazy um, bits of advice. So maybe why don't you start and pick one? I love the the following recommendation. It reads. Put several pinches of sawdust or hard grain, such as rice or wheat, into the fuel tank of a gasoline engine. (laughs) The particles will choke a feed line so that the engine will stop. So I think oftentimes sabotage can actually sabotage the saboteur and it Uh can cause you to become less productive. But there are other cases, potentially more disastrous, where you're actually sabotaging others, your peers. And I think this is... There's this um, term that was coined by Microsoft called licking the cookie. Uh So it describes the act of claiming something as something only you can do, but without actually doing it. So it's it's based on the idea that children oftentimes they'll lick two cookies so that you know their their friends won't be able to eat either cookie by virtue of the fact that they've claimed ownership over both. So you you create a bottleneck that that of something you uh, that's that happens all the time. It happens I, all the time, and I, I think I've done that to you multiple times. Actually. Like because you'll <laughs> ask to help me, and I'll say no, you can't help me. I have to do this myself, Rebecca, <laughs> even though you can do it just fine yourself. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've licked the cookie. And there's rumors that there was a senior leader at Google who was infamous for licking the cookie. He worked on the Google Plus product and would oftentimes lick the cookie and claim future products and features into presentations long before he had any intent of actually implementing them. So I know the, the the YouTube team in particular thought that um, they could implement some of these features much more quickly and wanted to do so, but were prevented by virtue of the fact that he had licked the cookie in the context of Google+. It is interesting because that kind of sabotage, uh, it's also a way to grab power. And what you do is you you because you know we talk about this idea of friction, frustration, and fatigue. There actually isn't any fatigue if you can't do anything. But it's it's like nothing's getting done, nothing's getting done, and you're not allowed to do it, and you have time to do it and the skill to do it. It's 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 really bad and it's really common. And it causes emotional exhaustion. It just increases cognitive load and makes you less productive. Yeah, it's interesting because you do see that a lot, especially um, powerful groups that aren't very good at implementing. Sometimes you'll see that. Okay, so this one here that I think is really funny to, to go off script. So this is, for those of you who are looking, general interference with organizations in production. And honestly, for those uh, listeners who have never been to a Stanford faculty meeting, this is what we do at every Stanford faculty meeting. Insist on doing everything through channels. Never permit shortcuts to be taken in order to expedite decisions. Make speeches. Talk as frequently as possible and at great length. Um, bring up irrelevant issues as frequently as possible. This is, what, this is what we do at faculty meetings is people will bring up irrelevant things. Oh, I love this is my favorite thing. Haggle over precise wordings of communications, minutes, and resolutions. Uh, and advocate caution. And, and this, this just, okay, so we're going to bring you as a consultant. You're a very efficient person. How can you get the Stanford faculty to stop doing this crazy stuff? A great first step is to set hard, clear rules. I think rules, especially in the context of with te- meetings. With people have too much job security? I think so. I think, you know, making making the the rules known to the group, writing them on the whiteboard, making them 
vividly apparent in the room can be very effective. Okay. So that, I have actually seen the rare faculty meeting member actually do that. So at the office, hotel, or exchange switchboards, remember this was World War II, um, delay putting enemy calls through, give them wrong numbers, cut them off accidentally, um, or forget to disconnect them so that the line cannot be used again. Um, It's actually essentially screwing up the communication in an organization on purpose. Can you can you think of, of of any analogy in organizations like so? Where does this happen? I think a great example is the reply all button on yep. email. It's I just I hate it. I don't think there's a simple um, reason for it. I don't think a single um, email ever warrants a reply all message. There's a great company, um, Nielsen, the data and measurement yeah, company, yeah, yeah. that has actually taken a proactive approach in graying out the reply all button from all emails. And so by default, you're not permitted to use that function. They realized that their employees were liberally clicking reply all, disturbing the entire organization with their reply all responses, and it was leading to unproductive um, clogging of the organization. One of the themes, the recurring themes that we've ran into throughout our podcast is this notion of, of creating friction so that you can't impose friction on others. So removing the, I mean, you could probably reply all or you have to type in all the individuals. So you, you, you can do it, but it's more work. And, and, and I think that's one of the little design hacks that we, we keep seeing over and over again, which is pretty cool. So, so friction can be a weapon against friction. Okay, so what other, what other of these crazy recommendations sort of struck you? Put any clogging substance into lubrication systems. Twisted combings <laughs> of human hair, pieces of string, dead insects, and many other common objects will be effective in stopping or hindering the flow of oil. Okay, so, so uh, that's the kind of thing my uh, kids would have done when they were three. <laughs> so what's the organizational analogy mm-hmm. of how you would do that in an organ? do that? Right. I immediately thought about unnecessary meetings in the workplace <laughs> because I consider them very much akin to this clogging substance on employees' calendars. They often come at the expense of critical work and sabotage productivity. Huggy and I worked with a company, this is about a decade ago, that they would have pre-meetings to, for, before the pre-meeting, before the pre-meeting... <laughs> And they'd finally have the meeting and then they'd have the to debrief. have the, 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 the debrief meetings. So every big meeting was kind of six meetings before and six meetings afterwards. And the meeting itself didn't matter because everything got done before and after. And it was just – and this is a, a very – well, actually it was a, a very successful company then that's, that's since cratered pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. And Mattel, the toy company, uh-huh. actually one of their rules for meetings is you should never have more than three meetings to decide upon one idea. Ooh. So I love that because it forces you to you know strategically consider what – Efforts before and after each meeting will help, you know, curtail the number of meetings required in that sequence of making the decision. Constraints are a lovely thing. Mm-hmm. Subtraction. 
One source of friction that's very common in organizations is silos. So mm-hmm. oftentimes teams will operate very much as distinct silos. I think, you know, a classic example is sales and marketing. They often live in two different worlds. You just wrote an article about this. I just wrote an article about this. Um, the Due to cultural differences, um, incentive differences, etc., sales and marketing have typically been at odds with each other. And it's only recently, largely as a result of the account-based marketing movement, that they've realized the need to streamline the two teams and make them work collaboratively together. But I think if you as a competitor are able to appreciate where the silos exist in your in your competitor's landscape, that enables you to better exploit them. So a good example is actually uh, Sony. Mm-hmm. So for years, the PlayStation division at Sony operated very much as a distinct silo. They were very separate from the other teams within the organization. They didn't share their ideas. They were almost, uh, you know, to the level of secretiveness that Microsoft and Apple are considered today. Um, And by virtue of that, they were impairing innovation from flowing to other teams. So if you're able to recognize where innovation might not be flowing as effectively as possible in your competitor's landscape, you're able to better exploit it and you're better able to understand, you know, perhaps PlayStation is on a path to success, but these other areas are not. And we should, you know, double down in those areas because we know that our competitors aren't as strong by virtue of the fact that they have these inherent silos. You you remind me of a story, and I got to be careful um, how I say this, but I think that I can do this by being kosher. Um, So so essentially, I heard a story from um, a Microsoft engineer about the bad old days, um, Microsoft, under its new CEO, Satya, much more cooperative, much more collaborative, actually a great CEO. The story that I heard uh, was essentially in the old days where they had the Microsoft phone, which they're bringing it back. Uh, what happened was that it turned out that it was much easier to use, um, to use the Microsoft operating system with, a, with an iPhone than with a Microsoft phone because they view because your silos they view sort of outside folks as enemies and to me that's when it gets really really destructive and what you want to do is you want to sort of uh, screw the people outside of the company not inside the company. I also think that friction can be a very powerful recruiting strategy. So if you recognize that friction, more from a cultural standpoint, Uh exists within one of your competitors, then you're able to more effectively exploit that as a recruiting strategy. I think, you know, if we consider Uber and Lyft, I know from my friends at Lyft, their recruiting strategy has slightly changed as a result of the recognition that Uber might have, you know, cultural problems, etc. Uh. They're able to exploit that friction and then, you know, potentially upplay their more fostering culture to be able to 
increase their recruiting effectiveness. Well, that, that's interesting because, I mean, the place I saw that firsthand, and, and now it doesn't exist so much more, but in the very early days, uh, I was hanging out some at uh, Facebook, and I used to go, was when Chris Cox, who is now head of product, they had 300 people, he was he was head of HR, actually. He's an engineer. They made head of HR because Mark liked him, and he actually did a great – he did a really good job, actually, building the culture and is still a key cultural person. And so uh, two or three times I went to new employee orientations. It would be eight, eight employees, six from Google, for example. They, they were stealing people from Google eventually, and then they stole Sheryl Sandberg. And, uh, and I remember Chris saying to the Google engineers who couldn't believe it, you can bring down the site. When we say move fast and break things, we really mean it. We want you to just go for it. It's easy to get stuff done here. You don't hesitate. You don't ask for permission. You just go. Well, obviously, they've grown up. That's not legal anymore or allowed or whatever. But you could sort of just see these engineers that they, they didn't have to deal with all this sort of friction and all this, this sort of politics. And it was one of the early things that, that appealed to them. It does happen now. I expect that Facebook, although I don't know for sure, is just like any other um, company. And they probably don't want a new engineer engineer bringing down the site. So things do change. Okay, so let's switch gears and talk about, there was was a piece that you and I wrote, and um, we actually went and visited this company called Build Direct. So Build Direct, they're they're in Canada, and and essentially they're trying to be the Amazon for really big, really heavy construction stuff, right? Isn't that kind of what it is? Yes, home building supplies. You order, I don't know, 2,000 pounds worth of um, flooring material, and they they have warehouses and deliver it to you. But, But they did something I thought that was really interesting for reducing friction, which was, remember the strategic rhythms in the rocks? Yes. Talk about that because because what was the name of the CEO? What was that guy's name? Jeff Booth. Jeff Booth because he had this he had a really interesting system for for reducing cognitive load and keeping people focused. Yes. So his idea is that at any given time you should only be focusing on five key areas of focus. Those five core areas of focus should be at the forefront of your mind. They should be placed first into your day and. They're the activities that you should be thinking about devoting the most um, of your time to. So, you know, the idea that if you're thinking about six or more ideas at any given one time, you're automatically distracted. It's impossible to to think strategically about more than five areas of focus at any one point. Well, the, the other thing he did that was really interesting, uh, I now recall, is, is they would go through a strategic process where every 60 days they would reconsider the, the, the five top things. And most times they would change. And they'd communicate it out to everybody. So this is sort of rhythm of we decide the five things we're going to do. Then we then for kind of 50 days, we don't talk about it. And then we have kind of 10 days where we all talk about if we're going to change them. And then we announce uh, the five we're going to do for the next 60 days. Really interesting rhythmically for being clear about the strategy and what you should pay attention to and avoid. So I, I, I thought it was actually pretty cool. It's really interesting. And I think the rhythm is effective for two reasons. First, you know, Build Direct employees are expected to live the f- 
the five rocks for those 60 days. They're supposed to commit to them. There's no second guessing them. But then at the end of the 60 days, they're critically evaluated, whether they're necessary, whether the most um, important items to be focusing on. A great example in the case of Build Direct, I believe um, exterior siding and kitchen cabinets were added one one cycle Uh as two big rocks. And they thought it was a great idea. It would lead to higher profitability. But in the end, they realized that implementing these two new features were involved very different set of resources than their existing suite of features. So Mm -hmm. the additional resources required were too much for the organization to handle at that point. And so at the end of the rhythm, the 60 days, those two rocks were removed. The intent was good, but it ended up not being feasible. So I think that's it's very healthy to reevaluate. Yeah. Well, one thing I really liked about that approach from both a friction and a strategy perspective is they would go through rhythms of mindlessness where we're just going to uh, – put a pedal to the metal and just sort of go. And that, so in Kahneman Traversky's stuff, sort of like that system one sort of mindless, we're just going to be on automatic processing. But then you kind of have 10 days where you actually think about what you're doing and then you, and you adjust and then you hit the gas again. So, so speeding up and slowing down really, I thought he was, he was a very um, entertaining CEO. I remember. He's a brilliant individual for sure. If you had a magic wand and could go into uh, the organizations you you work with and you could get them to stop doing one thing. I am not a proponent for Monday morning meetings. Ooh, why is that? Monday morning meetings, when you come into work on Monday, you're, all you're thinking about is the weekend. So by virtue of that, the first 20 minutes of almost every Monday morning meeting is devoted to catching up, sharing what you did over the weekend with colleagues. It automatically eats time out of the meeting. You're you don't also, think all that bonding, like that doesn't work for you? There's an extent, but that can be done, you know, at the water cooler. It doesn't need to be done at the Monday morning meeting with a bunch of attendees. Also on Monday morning, you're thinking about a billion different things. You're thinking about everything you need to get done in that week. You're at a very high cognitive load. And by virtue of that, you can't be fully engaged in the conversation. It's not going to be as productive a meeting. So I think to the extent you can have a meeting on Tuesday morning or later in the day on Monday, once you've cleared your inbox, once you're in a good mental place for the week, you'll you'll be better off. Okay. So that's the stop question. So now let's think about the start. Okay. So you've got your magic wand. And if you could get um, organizations to... to, to you know, start doing one thing that would be good for well-being and efficiency and all that sort of stuff. What would what would you uh, propose? The subtraction game. I think. Tell me more. Playing playing the subtraction game, taking one week out of every quarter or every half year to consciously go through your activities and think about whether each activity is really the most productive use of your time. 
So I, your addition is subtraction. It is. It is subtraction. <laughs> it's but it's an important subtraction because uh. it's it's taking that cognitive leap and proactively thinking about every email you send, every meeting you attend. Yeah. I think the our meeting get in practice is is very healthy to conduct on a annual basis or biannual basis. It can be just a huge mental shift for employees and causing them to reevaluate each meeting on their agenda. Rebecca, it's been great to talk to you. It always is. As always, it's great to engage in debate and discussion with you, Bob. What I really love about the Simple Sabotage Manual is although these lists of kind of crazy ideas were created 70 years ago, to me, when I look at them, they're just as fresh as ever. They uh, remind us of things that people still do in organizations, perhaps still shouldn't do. And the other perspective on it that I really like and that um, Rebecca really emphasized so well is this notion that friction can sometimes be constructive. It can be good for your organization or it can be a way to fight back against your competitors, even if you're not at war with them. Next week, we have a very special episode of the Friction Podcast. I'm inviting my producer, Rachel Jilkowski, to talk with me about workplace assholes, especially petty tyrants. This is going to be really fun, so please make it next week, and uh, we'll discuss those jerks who make it difficult for us to get simple things done at the workplace. Friction is produced by Eli Shell and Rachel Jilkowski. Michael Pena and Monica Yort are the outreach team. Daniel Stusi is our designer. Sarah Khan and Davor Sinkovich provide web support. And a big thanks to our guest, Rebecca Hines. I'm Bob Sutton. And now, the final tangent. In terms of good friction, I think you very much need to consider intent. So uh-huh. if the intent is to bring together opposing viewpoints, to spur healthy and productive debate, to engage in brainstorming, okay. if the goal is innovation or creativity, then that's that's good, healthy friction. On the flip side, I think bad friction is ill-intentioned. So it's, it often involves personal attacks. It's aimed at sabotaging productivity. If it causes any sort of inaction or excessive waste, whether uh-huh. that be in time or effort, it's bad friction. Now, I think it's important, a caveat to that uh-huh. is that bad friction can be good friction if it's used as an opportunity for learning. So oh, I think it's healthy for everyone to go through bouts of bad friction because you realize the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm.